Hey, I want to share this with you real quick. I, uh, I continue to be amazed and, uh, and challenged uh, by our students as, uh, as I lead them. A couple weeks ago, I had one of our students um, ask me, hey, so what are we studying uh, once we get back together in March? Where, where are we going? What are you going to be teaching about? What do I have to look forward to? And, uh, and I said, you know, to be honest, at that point, I was still kind of praying through it. I was discerning where God was calling us to, to take our students. And, and so I responded to him and I said, you know, I kind of feel this leading to the book of Colossians. I was reading the book of Colossians and I feel like God might be telling us, like, that's where we need to go next. And, uh, and I said, but, but honestly, also, there's these things that have come up with students that uh, I feel like maybe we should go in that direction and do these kind of small series like about relationships, talking about relationships, or um, have had students talk to me about like, how do I, I want to go deeper, like I want to I go deeper with, uh, with Jesus, and have had people talk about like, can we, can we walk through how to deal with temptations, things like that, and so I see all these different things, and so I was telling him, I was telling him some of those, and I said, I'm just, I'm just not sure which way to go, and uh, his answer was this, and it's beautiful. It's a good reminder for us today as we open up his word. He said, uh, hey, hey, Troy, um, all of those things are found in his word. It's like, well, okay, that's, you are officially the youth pastor at Sanctuary Church. Congratulations. And it was just such a good reminder, right? Isn't that right? Isn't that true? And if every single one of our middle school, high school could, students could head off to college with an understanding of it's in his word, it's found in his word. Oh, man, I would, be, I would be so excited about that. So I love on Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights with our students, I love that we are just going to simply study his word. Amen? The good news is found all throughout the gospel of Mark. And we have a whole lot to unpack this morning in uh, these stories. And so we're going to get right back in it. The reason we've talked about the last couple of weeks, the reason that, we're, uh, that the book of Mark was written was to study the teachings of Jesus and to present him, to present him, to tell the story of and the testimony of how Jesus is servant, both servant and son of God. And I think these two labels, these two names that we call Jesus, I think, so, I think a lot of times these can be hard to put together. That we would see him as the son of the most high God, but that we would see him humble himself as servant. And so Mark seeks as he writes his gospel, he is seeking to join those together and show us how that's possible. And I think, I think what we'll talk about this morning is that as people were hearing this and they were, they were seeing this, there were a lot of misunderstandings that, pop up, that popped up. A lot of things that they couldn't really wrap their minds around and that they ended up getting wrong. And so let me ask you this. Have you ever had a situation where someone thought one thing, but something else was actually true? Maybe this is... Maybe this has happened to you, but um, I don't know if you've ever like talked to someone, you know, one night, one afternoon and said, hey, would you want to grab breakfast in the morning? And so you're planning on it to say, yeah, that'd be great. I got nothing in the morning. Let's meet at 8, 8 a.m. Let's meet at uh, Chick-fil-A. Okay. And so you go away and, you know, excited. Next morning you wake up, you get ready and you head to Chick-fil-A and you get to Chick-fil-A uh, maybe a couple minutes early and you're waiting. All right. 8 a.m. hits, still no friend. Okay. And so you go, like, you wait, like, 10, I don't know, this is, maybe I'm the only one this has happened to, but about 10 or 15 minutes, and you're looking around, and you're like, they, I guess they must have slept in, all right? That I, I was here, but they must have, 
slept in, okay? So then you, you take out your phone and you send them the text, um, hey, I'm, I'm here. You know, it's kind of that guilty, that's like guilt-ridden text. Like, hey, uh, I'm here. You forgot about me kind of thing. And they say, yeah, I'm here too, right? And then that's when you do the scan. You know, you scan the restaurant and you go, what did I miss? What did I miss? Okay? And then you go, no, I'm, I'm here at the Brookstone Chick-fil-A. And they go, I'm at Chick-fil-A on 41. Has that ever happened to anybody or is that just, is that literally just me? Can, can I guess? Uh, I just need to see some hands raised real quick. Make me feel better. Okay, so we've done that, all right? Where we think one thing, but something else is totally true, and it's just this misunderstanding that happens. This morning, our passage, our passages that we're going to talk about communicate this misunderstanding of the good news, all right? We're walking through uh, the, the Lent season, and, um, and every Sunday uh, on the app, there's going to be a devotional. And these are all going to come from these passages of Scripture where Jesus uh, brings clarity to, I have come for this. Do you know the passages I'm talking about? This week we're studying, I have come to do my Father's will. I have come for the will of my Father. Not my own, but for the will of my Father. I have come so that you may have life. All right, so we have these passages we're digging into, I have come. And why does Jesus feel the need to do that? He feels the need to do that because there's a misunderstanding based on Old Testament teachings and, and Jewish laws that people are misunderstanding why Jesus came. And so this morning, we got two stories and we got four examples. And in these four examples, Jesus is going to bring clarity into the good news of his coming. And I want to make sure this morning that we don't have the same misunderstandings that we're reminded of and challenged uh, about the reasons that he came. So here's where we're headed this morning. I'm going to give you these real quick. Two misunderstandings in these two stories of Scripture. Misunderstandings about the good news is that they were misunderstanding who Jesus came for. Who was it that Jesus came for? And the second one is what he came to do. There was this misunderstanding. They missed it. I was telling it's it's the misconcept. It's the, it's the misunderstanding of what he came to do. And so we'll study that through Lent. So let's jump right in. We're going to get to misunderstanding number one, who Jesus came for. If you got your Bibles, we're going to go to Mark 2, 13 through 22 is where we're at this morning. And we'll start with our first story in 13 through 17. Mark 2, 13 through 17. And I'm going to kind of take this piece by piece, okay? We're going to just kind of break down this passage of scripture uh, as we see Matthew uh, being called to be one of Jesus' disciples. It says this, Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And this is it. Jesus said these two words, Follow me. And Jesus, uh, Jesus told him, and Levi got up, and he followed him. Now, I don't know if you're like me in this. Whenever I read the invitation I was talking about this with our students a couple weeks ago, but whenever I read Jesus' invitation for his disciples to follow him, all right, we see this call and we see this response. But my personality has a little bit of a problem with this because I want more. Like I know there's more detail to this call and this response that we see when Jesus calls his disciples, but every single time we get, follow me, and they followed. All right? Maybe it's supposed to be that simple. But my mind has a really hard time with that. My mind is fascinated thinking about the unspoken things in this interaction, okay? I mean, in our house, if we're going to buy a new uh, blender, 
Okay, I'm researching the blender for about an hour to figure out what's the best blender. Okay, I'm not just going to go to Walmart and buy the one on the shelf. No, I'm going to I'm going to research the best one at the best price with the best reviews that's on the best sale. Okay, it's really sad. Janice, she hates me for it, but uh, but it's it's just what I do. And so when I read this, follow me, and he followed. It's hard for me to. I want to know more of the details here, but but whatever the details. They dropped everything and followed, and and Levi, soon to be Matthew, is no different. Jesus says, follow me, and Levi says, I'm going to leave it, and I'm going to go after Jesus. Uh, Tuesday morning, um, I got to the church a little early. I was planning on kind of getting here before anybody was here, uh, working on the message for Sunday, things like that. So I get here, and I get out of my car, um, and all of a sudden, kind of in the distance, Running uh, in the front of the church, I see this, uh, this figure early in the morning. And this figure, and mind you, on, on this morning, Tuesday morning, it's 29 degrees, okay? So it's really cold. I've got my jeans, my vest, you know, I'm looking good for the morning. And all in front of the church, there's this shadowy figure with shorts and a thin long sleeve shirt and a mask uh, where you can just see about that much of their face. And I was a little bit... Uh, nervous as they were coming. But honestly, the part of me was looking at him going, you've lost your mind, okay? I'll just confession about people that run when it's 30 degrees. I think you're an overachiever. You know what I'm saying? Like there's so many, there's so many other options, things that you could be doing. That's just me though. And I'm very critical uh, about that. But in my mind, I'm thinking this guy has lost his mind. Okay, and so he's coming closer, and I was trying to avoid, because I'm feeling bad about myself, because he's out running, and I'm not. And so, uh, and he's coming closer and closer, and all of a sudden, he pulls down the mask, and he goes, let's go, come on. And I was like, now you really lost it. Okay, you're crazy. Now, I'm not going to mess up the vest or anything like that, but he's, let's go, follow me, all right, come run with me. It was Jonathan Holiday, okay? It wasn't a random stranger, but it was Jonathan Holiday. Jonathan, yeah, let's, I mean, we can applaud. No, we don't want to. He doesn't want that. Uh, Jonathan, he's like, you're ultra marathons and things like that. Incredible. We go to retreats and he's running and I'm like, what? I'm sleeping, okay? And uh, it's just absolutely amazing. Um, I, just seeing him run makes me feel uh, so bad about myself. But it's not what he's doing. It's really what I'm not doing. So it's not his fault. But he asked me, hey, follow me, all right? And I got into my office, and I started thinking, like, how crazy he was and things like that. And then I was like, what if I had? Like, what if, what if that invitation was just a drop everything and hit the trails with? I wouldn't have lasted very long, but, but hit the trails with him. And this is the call and the response to follow. This is what we see. We don't see a lot of the details in it. But the call here is follow me. Like Matt said, last week he was talking about that Jesus knew the hearts of the people. And so as Jesus was calling the disciples, I think we have to understand that Jesus knew their hearts. And so when we see an interaction like this with Levi, the tax collector, I don't think we assume that he had never thought about Jesus and he just said, yeah, sure, I'll follow. Who, who are you? Who, who are, what are we doing? What are we, where are we going? I think that Jesus knew his heart. And I think in Levi's heart there was something stirring that made him go, Man, God, maybe you're, caught, maybe you're doing something different. Who is this Jesus that I keep hearing about, that I've heard teach, that people tell in stories about? Who is this Jesus? 
I, want, I, I would love to follow him. And Jesus says, you're the one. All right, so he says, follow me. Levi's response, he got up and he followed. Levi had heard about Jesus. He had heard the murmurings of what we talked about last week where the paralytic was lowered through the roof and Jesus healed him and forgave him of his sins. And Levi had heard this. Maybe he had sins that were stacking up and stacking up. And he heard that there was a man who could forgive all of those and give new life. And so Levi is interested. Maybe Jesus knew that Matthew wanted to turn his life around. Maybe Jesus knew that he was looking for something new. But whatever the reason, Levi followed. So what we find next in this next passage of scripture is that Levi makes the decision to follow Jesus. He drops everything. And, and, and Levi, then the, the next scene is Jesus, Levi, Jesus' disciples, and a whole guest list of people that are found at Levi's house. I read some commentaries that said uh, this was kind of a going away party or like a job transition uh, kind of po- party that he had decided to follow uh, Jesus. And so now all his friends are gathering together and they're wishing him the best of luck and they're celebrating uh, him together. Um, I also read one that said that maybe Levi brought them together so that he could share the good news of what he has just accepted and experienced. And he's bringing all these other people that we're gonna find out needed Jesus just as much as he did. And they're gathering together for a meal. So let's keep reading verse 15 through 17. So Levi's called, and then we find this dinner happening. 15 through, uh, we'll go 16. 15 through 16 says this, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? All right, so here's what we have. This this guest list is is really interesting. It's made up of people exactly like Levi or who Levi was. It's the people that he hung out with. It was the influences in his life. Tax collectors, the NLT says disreputable sinners. These were his influences. And because of this guest list, the Pharisees, like they always do, began to respond. And the NLT says, that they responded with, why does he eat with such scum? Why does he, the Pharisees had this distaste about who they were eating with and there was judgment about who they were with and who Jesus and his disciples were spending time with and hanging out with and teaching and celebrating this meal with, all right? And I'll tell you, this is misunderstanding number one and Jesus is about to address it. The misunderstanding is that Jesus came for the self-righteous, Jesus, the misunderstanding that they missed, the Pharisees missed, because the Pharisees knew the Old Testament. They were waiting for the Messiah. They knew what they were waiting for. And when Jesus came on the scene, they missed it. They missed this part of it, that Jesus came for a certain type of people. So let's break down uh, Jesus' response. I think you'll find this pretty amazing, challenging, uh, and encouraging all at the same time. This is what Jesus says. On hearing this, Jesus said to them. Now, um, I'm going to read this out of NLT. I like the way that uh, NLT um, words it. I think it's, I think it's really good for, for our minds to hear this. And so I'm going to actually put NLT up on the screen if you don't have NLT. But here's Jesus' response. He says this, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. All right? And that's kind of one of those statements that Jesus makes like, I'm th- pretty sure we all knew that. Okay? Healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. 
All right? So let me ask you this question. When you go to the doctor, uh, when, sorry, when do you go to the doctor? When do you go to the doctor? This isn't a trick question, by the way. I'll just say that. Yeah, you go when you're sick, right? And if you're a guy, you don't go, okay, because we're never sick. We don't go, okay? Um, it's, so have you ever, I'll ask you this, have you ever gone to the doctor feeling perfectly healthy, okay? Could you imagine how that scenario might play out, okay? You get into the doctor's office, you sit down, the nurse or the doctor comes in, and uh, they say this, so what is the reason for your visit today? You know that? What's the reason for your visit today? And you look at the doctor and you say, um, well, no reason, really. I feel great. I'm actually great. I feel better than I've ever felt before, okay? What's the response of the, of the doctor going to be? The doctor's going to look at you um, and they're going to say, I think you have totally misunderstood why I'm here. I, th- I think you've totally misunderstood what it is that I'm here for or who I'm here for, okay? So healthy people don't need a doctor Sick people do. They didn't understand that Jesus is the great physician of the soul. Jesus goes on to say this, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous. Okay, let's think about that. I have come to call, and he's speaking directly to the Pharisees, not those who think they are righteous. And that word think in there is really interesting because it's an illusion. You think you are this, but but you're not. Pharisee is a word that means separated one. They separated themselves from everything and everyone that was unholy. They distanced themselves so that they would be, that they would be right before God, that they would not, uh, that the, the unholy would not rub off on them. Uh, Luke 18, jump over to um, two books to Luke 18. 9 through 14. And we see another instance where Jesus kind of confronts the Pharisees and uh, really kind of compares the Pharisees and the tax collectors here. Luke 18, 9 uh, through 14 says this. To some who were confident of their own righteousness. To, so Jesus is speaking to those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector right here. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you this. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And all those who humble themselves will be exalted. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Not those who think they are righteous but those who know and are confident that they are sinners. David uh, Guzik says this, there are three kinds of patients whom Jesus cannot heal of their sickness. Now, obviously, Jesus can do any and all, and if there is a change of heart, then, uh, but it is these three things 
three kinds of patients whom Jesus cannot heal of their sickness. Those who do not know about him, they know nothing about him. Those who know about him but refuse to trust him. I know that he's there. I know what he does. I know that he heals, but I, I don't trust him. And those who will not admit that they need him. Those who don't admit that they need him. So misconception, misunderstanding number one uh, is this. They were misunderstanding who Jesus came for. They missed it. They got it wrong. They were thinking that he came to save those who were trying to save themselves, to save those whose lives were cleaned up, to save those who were this close to righteousness, so they believed. But Jesus came, the truth is that Jesus came to save sinners those in desperate need of him. Now, this is step one for you and me to understand salvation. This is step one. You don't need salvation if you don't understand that you are in need of saving. If you don't believe that, there is no reason for Jesus to die. There is no reason for him to save you. Step one is recognizing that you are in desperate need of a savior. The question um, that I want to ask you kind of for this first uh, part of this passage um, is this, where does this passage sit with you today? I found it interesting that every time I would read through this passage, there was something different that kind of hit me. Like there was a challenge, there was like a new challenge, or there was a conviction uh, in this passage and just the way that I viewed people around me, right? I mean, you read this passage and you go, golly, am I treating other people in such a way where I don't look at what they're doing and compare it to what I'm doing, but am I, tr- am I viewing people in such a way that I recognize we are on the same level, both in desperate, dire need of a Savior? And so it could be challenging, it could be encouraging to know, God, I am a sinner and you came for me. And so the challenge in these passages is to live in the mindset of who he came for, to live in the mindset, seeing people in light of who he came for and understanding and believing and living every morning you wake up and you go, God, I'm a sinner. May your grace and mercy just be poured out on me. That's the misunderstanding, number one, along with the truth that why did Jesus come? Who did Jesus come for? He came for sinners. He came for sinners. Misunderstanding number two is this. What Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And I'm going to kind of title this next part as Jesus uh, addresses a question. I'm going to title it Feast, Fabric, and Fermentation. And you'll see in a little bit. That's not a weird title, I promise. It kind of is, but uh, we'll get to it. Mark 2, 18 through 22, let's keep reading what Jesus says next. This is another interaction. It's another moment where um, Jesus answers a question where some people are misunderstanding what it was that Jesus came to do. Okay? says this, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Okay, so this question surfaces from someone observing or seeing something that seems to be off. That Jesus' disciples are not engaged, they don't appear to be engaging in fasting like the Pharisees and like John's disciples are doing. And so let me give you two facts about fasting at this point in history, and then we'll talk about uh, what fasting is and just kind of get a reminder on that. Two, two facts about fasting at this point in history. Jesus in Matthew 6, he says that fasting is to be done in secret, right? We know that. Jesus teaches that when you fast, 
go into your room, right? And don't put the oil on your head so that nobody can see uh, the sadness or uh, this disruption of your life um, on you. When you do it, you do it in secret, okay? Uh, fasting, posting on social media, your fast is not necessarily what Jesus had in mind when he talked about that, okay? And so um, at this point, we see this, and it's interesting what's said. Uh, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked, how is it that they're fasting, but you are not? So the fasting done by John's disciples and the Pharisees appears to be very outwardly. Do you see that? They were doing it outwardly. And so they noticed this difference about fasting between Jesus and his disciples. Here's the second fact. The Pharisees fasted twice a week. In Luke 8, it tells us this, twice a week, which was uh, an addition to the Jewish law. The Jewish law actually did not um, command Jews to fast that much. But when the Jews began to see that it allowed them to, to seem more spiritual, they began to do it a little bit more. So we can't judge the heart, but was it done for the right reasons? It doesn't appear to be. So fasting, I believe, is, is this beautiful, possibly, like a, possibly a lost spiritual discipline of his Christ followers. Right? And because it's done in secret, I don't know if you fast or if this is kind of a a regular thing that you do, it can be a really, really beautiful thing. Fasting is this temporary denial of something that is in itself good. In the Old Testament, we see from food. Nowadays, a lot of times, we may, we may walk through a fast where it's something else because we have these other things that steal our time, energy, and affection from Jesus and being in his presence. And so nowadays you see fast from these other things, and that's not necessarily wrong, but it is a denial of something in order to intensify our expression of need for God. Not a fast just to fast. Not, it's not a fast to say that we uh, have removed this from our life for a period of time. It's removing something to be replaced with something, right? A lot that should be focused on God. A lot of us maybe have likely experienced fasting, um, we give something to draw closer to him. Now, this is interesting. The, pur- the purpose in Old Testament fasting was an expression of longing for the not yet of the kingdom. For the not yet of the kingdom. They fasted uh, to kind of create this longing in them uh, that kind of symbolized their longing for God to send a rescuer. For God to send uh, a Messiah. And so they fasted where they longed for food, it then transformed into this longing for God send someone. We are aching, we're aching down here. Do you see that? That's kind of the purpose in the Old Testament of fasting. But Jesus, he has something to say about that. Mark 19, he continues, Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day, they will fast. Now, by using the illustration of a wedding, the bridegroom, Jesus drew on this powerful picture among the Jews. Um, During the week-long wedding celebration, full week, there were feasts, there were joyous celebration. It was exciting. You've probably experienced this. Janice and I went to this wedding uh, one time. It was in Birmingham. It's actually one of my students. Um, and uh, him and his wife, uh, they were engaged. They were planning on their wedding. And when I talked to him, he said, hey, I'm going to tell you this. You don't want to miss it. 
This is going to be the most fun, most incredible celebration. We are going to, we're going to party. It's going to be amazing, all right? Um, it was kind of funny because the, the wedding was uh, about 20 minutes and the uh, reception was about seven hours. Uh, it was really, really, really interesting. But he was like, he invited, I think their guest list was a thousand, which I was like, are you, have you lost your mind? Um, and uh, they had it on New Year's Eve, which I was also like, have you lost your mind? Everything's more expensive. Uh, it, was, it was great, but it was, it was so fun. There were, I mean, I think we had three meal, three different meals in that time span of six to seven hours at this celebration. And so Jesus is talking about this wedding celebration that is a feast. It, it, it's just, it's a celebration. Now, back then they were a week long. And because of this, uh, rabbis would declare if the, you were in the midst of a wedding celebration, that you could postpone your uh, religious rituals such as fasting in that moment. The rabbi said, you don't want to appear to be in sadness while you're fasting. You can go ahead and enjoy the celebration and, and enjoy uh, the, the wedding feast and the wedding celebrations at that point. And so they would halt their fasting for those weeks. And so Jesus is talking about this picture alluding to that, that you don't, they cannot, they cannot fast so long as they have the bridegroom with them. One of the things that hit me studying this passage was the direct link of fasting and the presence of God. In the Old Testament, they fasted as a longing for his coming, as like an awaiting for his presence. And then Jesus says the days will come. So Jesus knew his physical immediate presence would not always be with his disciples, okay? I mean, when Jesus is speaking this, Jesus knows, and they have misunderstood, that they are right now living in a very different time period, that fasting has now become a very different thing. It's no longer longing for the Messiah. Jesus is trying to explain to him and them and bring them clarity that they now live in the point in history where you fast, not because you're longing for that coming, but right then you are living in the presence of Almighty God in Jesus at that moment. And Jesus says, a day will come, meaning fasting is not a bad thing. It's not something that we cancel altogether. But a time will come where fasting will change yet again. That the presence of God and salvation has come to earth. And now our fasting is longing to be again in his presence. It went from longing to see him first to being in his presence to now longing to be face to face again. All right, so fasting has taken on a very different uh, thing here. I want to jump to John 16 um, so, so that we, uh, we see this. This is another just picture of the longing that will happen. This is John 16, 20 through 22. And we see the longing here. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. And this is when Jesus, um, this is, when Jesus is crucified and resurrected. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish, and because of her joy uh, that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. 
So we see the joy that is, that's pictured here when it comes to uh, living beyond Jesus, living beyond salvation. All right, so fasting has this deep, direct connection to his presence. Um, and I think we see this when we fast today. I was kind of thinking of it um, in, in this way. Let me kind of give you this uh, example. A couple weeks ago, we took our students to, uh, to Winter Freeze, our middle school, high school students to Winter Freeze. It was amazing. I love retreats. I wish that I got more sleep. I wish the beds weren't plastic. I wish the food was better. I wish a lot of things, but I love these retreats. And there's a whole lot of reasons why. But a lot of times when we come back, I'll have students say to me, I feel his presence deeper on retreats. Why is that? I I experience him on a deeper level when we go on retreats. Why is that? All right. And I'll look at them and we tell our students every single time when we get back, hey, when we come into Wednesday nights, Sunday morning, the same God that you're worshiping at Winter Freeze and Fuel is the same God that we worship on a Wednesday night and on a Sunday morning. There is no difference. So what gives? Why Why is there this feeling of closeness that happens on retreats? And I'll tell you, I I think it's this. I think because when we do retreats, there's fasting that is happening. They're removing things in their lives in order to replace it with deeper understanding of him. Okay? We don't allow students to bring cell phones. You want to talk about fasting from something for a couple days. They hate, well, some of them hate that. All right? they, they hate that. But when they get back, they're like, oh, it was so good. But give me my phone. You know? And so they fast from their phones. They fast from worries of life that they left back here at home and went to camp. Okay? They fast from temptations that were left here. They fast from uh, all of those, a lot of different things over those couple days, and they replace it with what? With diligent time in his word. They replace it with morning, afternoon, and night worship. They replace it with fellowship of other believers, like-minded believers. And so, in a sense, when we do retreats with our students, there's this really incredible I don't even think they know about it, fasting that happens where they give th- remove things in order to replace it with things. And because of that, they go, I sense his presence deeper. That's what fasting is. That's what fasting does for us. So Jesus was correcting this misunderstanding for the Pharisees. Think about this. The Pharisees were consumed with self-righteousness, and Jesus was preaching divine grace. The Pharisees, they denied that they were sinners, and Jesus preached repentance from sins. They were proud of their religiosity, and Jesus preached humility. They embraced external ceremony and tradition, and Jesus preached a transformed heart. They loved the applause of men, and Jesus offered the approval of God. They had dead rituals but Jesus offered a relationship. And they promoted a system, and Jesus provided salvation. And this was the misunderstanding that was happening. This is where they missed it. They missed what he came for. So our next part gives us a little bit more insight into this, and we'll kind of finish right here. Mark uh, Mark 2, 21 through 22. Um, Our passage continues, says this, No one, this is two more examples, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. 
No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. The danger of trying to put something new on something old is clear in this illustration of a garment uh, and its patch. And the same principle was true for wineskin. A wineskin was made of animal uh, hide. And uh, it expanded under the fermentation of process that new wine goes through. And so when new wine was poured into a new wineskin, there was this expansion that happened. It thinned out the, uh, the animal hide. And once that happens, you can't put new wine in it again because that fermentation process is going to keep going and keep going and keep expanding the hide. And so, um, so what Jesus is trying to say here is you can't fit Jesus' new way of life into the old forms. The Pharisees were trying to take Jesus and his testimony and fit them into their religious uh, ways, their religious rituals and what they were doing. They were trying to fit him into their way of life. But Jesus came not to patch something old, but to introduce something new. He came for a very new purpose, a new way. He opened up a new way for us to have life in and through him. Matthew 5.17. Matthew 5.17 says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but what? But to fulfill them. Not to do away with them, but to fulfill them. This is what salvation is about. It is about a way that you and I can't create on our own, that you and I can't live up to on their own. And that was where the Pharisees missed it. They said, we're doing all of the right things. I think that we are positive that we are in right standing with God. And Jesus says, no, I've come for something new. I have come to bring a new way of life. And so this misunderstanding of what did Jesus come for, they didn't understand it. They thought that he was that Jesus was coming and they were going to patch him right into the way that they were living. And Jesus came. The truth is that Jesus came to bring joy and to bring new life. Bring new life. I love this quote by Piper. We'll kind of close on this. He says, The great, central, decisive act of salvation for us today is past, not future. And on the basis of that past work of the bridegroom, Nothing can ever be the same again. The wine is new. The blood is shed. The lamb is slain. The punishment of our sin is executed. Death is defeated. The bridegroom is risen. The spirit is sent. The wine is new. And the old fasting mindset is simply not adequate. Why? Because he has come. He has come as servant. And he has come as son of God. And Jesus has to constantly work to remind us. And so that's a good reminder for us this morning. We want to close there thinking about what do we believe about this? Like, do we believe who he came for? Do we have a correct understanding of who he came for and why Jesus came? Not, that so, we would, not, not so that we would do all of the right things in order to gain his favor, but so that we would trust in, confess, and believe in who he is and what he's done. That's why he came. So this morning, as we move through this Lent season, our desire as a faith family, as we're kind of leading through some of this, is that we ask the question, do you know who Jesus came for? Do you know who it is that he came for? 
And do you know what he came to do? My encouragement to you is just think on those questions over these next couple weeks leading up to the, as we celebrate uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection, knowing who he came for, knowing who he gave his life for, and knowing why he did that is so important for us in this season. Let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you for this time. God, thank you for your word, uh, your clarity. God, thanks for gently giving us examples to set us straight. And Father, for us in this room, God, help us to understand that you came for sinners just like every single one of us in this room. For me, God, you came for me. I'm a sinner in desperate need of your saving, a sinner in desperate need of your rescue. And so, God, I pray that we would have that mindset, that we would see that, and it would change and filter into all these different parts, that it would change the way that we see those around us, coworkers, family, friends. If we recognize that you came to save sinners, then we are on the exact same level. And so, God, help us to have grace as you had grace and mercy as you had mercy. Help us to see in that light and help us to recognize and fully understand, God, you came for a new way. You came for a relationship, not a religion. You came to call us to yourself that we can trust in you. And so, God, if there's anybody in here who has not done that, Father, would you just begin to stir in their hearts just like you did Levi? Stir in their hearts where they would go, "Ah, I need something different. I want this Jesus that I'm hearing about. So God, if there's anybody in here, maybe maybe this morning is the morning that they would accept you. So God, thank you that you came for us and you came to give us life and life to the full. God, we love you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.